0: But we want to be a place where we say, come and be who God made you to be. And that's what we affirm. Um, so thanks for being here, and thanks for being supportive of that mission. Well, I was, I was thinking back this week. It is this summer, and I'm thinking about, uh, Lexi's out of school. I think school ends, is at Wednesday or Thursday, something like that? So I have, and Karina's going out of town uh, to see a friend, and she's taking Jackson. So I'm like, boy, I might actually have a day where I could actually do something fun, so I'm going to try to get like a mountain bike, my mountain bike, and go out and go mountain biking. Uh, Right now, I'm going to do it on my own, so if anybody's a mountain biker here and wants to join me, you're welcome to, but I'm like, this is my only opportunity for who knows how long, so I'm going to do it, (laughs) so I'm going to do it, and if I just, you know, I'm going to tell my parents where I'm going, so if I just like end up sprawled, you know, Unconscious on a trail somewhere, they'll at least know which trail I'm on or the vicinity of trail I'm on. Um, but I, I enjoy mountain biking, and I've I've gotten a mountain bike a good bit. Uh, well, in my definition, a good bit, I guess. Uh, so it kind of it kind of started where some of some of my friends said, "Oh, we should take a trip to Moab because Moab is is like a a world renowned mountain biking place." And my favorite thing about Moab is you'll just, because it's so world-renowned, you'll run into people just from literally all over the world. Uh, we were doing this one trip. I think I told you all, you all about this on the, I forget what it was called, the Whole Enchilada Trail. And we're taking this shuttle up, and there's just people from, like, some people from Ireland, this, these guys from Ireland, and there's some guys from, like, uh, Norway or something like that. It's just, it's just crazy how they come from all over. Um, so we're at this, this boys' trip, so to speak, to Moab in the summer of 2015. I think it was August. And we had been there about five days, and I was looking forward to getting one last good ride in. I think it was a Saturday before we had to had to head back uh, the next morning. So as we were as we were finishing up, you know, uh, finishing up breakfast, loading up the camelbacks, backs, putting some snacks, you know, in, in the backs, and right during that time of transition, my phone rang. And it's one of those phone calls you don't want to get. When you're on vacation, hundreds of miles away from family. So as it turns out, uh, my grandfather, who had been hospitalized for a knee replacement and had been uh, staying in a rehab center, uh, he had been found unresponsive, I think early that morning. And he had been taken to the ER, of course, but it was, you know, it was already, it was already over, basically. And it was obviously just a matter of time before we passed, or he passed. And fortunately, I I have some good friends because, you know, uh, Moab does kind of have an airport. But you can imagine flights from Moab to Denver would be ungodly expensive. And I don't know if you can even Uber that far. So they said, hey, you know what, we'll just pack up everything and we'll head out a day early. So we packed up everything, and we're making the trip across I-70, and it seemed like it was a long trip. And we met my wife, Corrine, at the, uh, what are the dinosaur parking rides up there on I-70, right? We met there, and I remember, uh, coming coming down across C-470, all the way around to Littleton Hospital, where he was. And I think the, the most, the oddest part of that memory is what stands out to me is, um, you know I, by the time I got there it was it was i think it was like two or three in the afternoon, something, something in the middle of the afternoon and uh my family was there it was kind of they had kind of like taken over the whole waiting room right and there was there was food there was beverages there was, they had friends and family had come and just kind of brought us a spread but for me, it was kind of weird because you know my my mom and my dad and and my sisters and even my grandma were kind of just sitting there and Laughing and sharing good memories of Grandpa, and for me, like it was weird for me because I had just gotten there, so they're at a different point in their stage of of the grieving process, essentially. So I was kind of like, "Well, what's going on here?" So, you know, we were there uh, with my grandfather um, through that through that day, and we stayed, I think, some time uh, pretty late, and eventually uh, we left, and he passed shortly thereafter. And honestly, I think the most unsettling and upsetting part of, of this whole process was, was his funeral. So during this time, my grandparents were, were members of Inglewood uh, Baptist Church, which is a large, stately, just, I, to me it's an iconic, one of the most iconic churches in the city. And it's, it's in Old Inglewood, right on Broadway, and it has this big, big brick building with big white columns and a huge white steeple on top. It's a really uh, unforgettable building in my mind, but that day, for me, I wanted to forget everything that happened, uh, most of what happened at least at his funeral. So the pastor was, you know, an an older silver-haired man who preached what he, I imagine he perceived as to be a, a message of comfort and hope to us, you know, the family. Unfortunately, Uh, In all honesty, I found it to be the opposite of anything comforting or hoping, hopeful. I found it very upsetting and agitating. And basically, the point of his message was was that me, my family, we should all be so happy that Don Bias—that's his name—I wanted to uh, remember the name of Don Bias, and I I meant to bring it. I meant to wear his belt today. I have his belt. Uh, But we should all remember the name of Don Bias. Uh, We should all be so happy for Don Bias because he's in heaven now. And in fact, Don Bias is so happy in heaven now that even if he could come back, he wouldn't. Even if he could come back, he wouldn't. Kind of bums me out here just just hearing that, to be honest, still. Um, And I get what he was trying to say, right? I get what he was trying to say. But what came across... Throughout that entire message was basically that grieving, being sad, was unchristian and indicative of a lack of faith. To me at least, he wasn't allowing me or my family an opportunity to grieve. So the next day we went to uh, what's the Fort Logan right, where they buried because my, my grandfather had served, and the next day we did the, the the procession, the graveside. I I remember just that next day, just being so exhausted, really, of it all. Just like, and of course, that pastor was there again. And I was kind of just, kind of just done with it all. I said, I just I want to be done with this and move on. And to be frank, to grieve. I just wanted a chance to grieve. Um, and I know I think probably I'm not alone in this scenario, right? Whether we've experienced a death in our own family whether um, it's something we've seen from a distance, I think it's probably something many of us can relate to. For whatever reason, and I don't, you know, I'm not a sociologist, for whatever reason, though, it seems like in mainstream American culture, we just don't allow for grieving. Even the, even the most generous workplaces allow, like, what, three days for a, a bereavement leave? And after those three days are over, it's like, back to work, back to normal, pretend everything's fine, and Man, if you've ever dealt with a death, you know that three days is hardly enough to even deal with the legal the process, let alone begin to even process your own emotions and feelings. And, I, you know, really, honestly, it's not much better in Christian circles. My mom uh, was working for a Christian school during this time, and she got, you know, she returned to work after the death of her father, and she was belittled by her boss for not being over her, over his death soon enough. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, I'm not sure what it is about this culture. But to me, to me, the further I'm removed from the death of my grandfather, the more I value that grieving period. So uh, the last church I was at uh, served in, you know, in a neighborhood, is a neighborhood church kind of like this. And in one of those new houses was this retired family, this retired couple that, you know, bought... And retired into this in this suburb, suburban neighborhood, just kind of like what you see out there, uh, to to retire. Only the 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 wife she had passed a couple of years earlier, and there's this old gentleman who was he was as literally as I can say it, dying of a broken heart. His family lived, uh, you know, hour hour and a half away, and and his son. And it sounds like they didn't have a great relationship, but. I just happened to, happened to encounter him one day through an through a event at the church, and because I could tell he was really just not in a great place, I kind of kind of made it my ministry, my mission, to kind of just check up on him every once in a while. So I'd, I'd go by and visit him once in a while, or I'd give him a call on the phone. And I kind of did this practice over a course of, you know, six to eight months. And as I continued to see him kind of go downhill, I'd try to set up like, you know, Uh, some kind of social services for him to help, you know, help him along. But one day I thought, you know, I really haven't seen him in a while. I I gave him a call, and his son answered. And he said, we came to visit him, and he was, he had passed. And I think the thing that, one of the things that most bummed me out, is I kind of said, hey, let me know how I can be supportive and as a pastor, I kind of wanted him to say, hey, you can do his funeral. And the son said, you know, we're not, we're not going to do any kind of service. And for me, even just for me, for me having a chance to grieve, I wanted there to be some kind of service, even just small, so I would have a chance to grieve his loss. I think that there's so, so, much, so much importance to having that time and that space to grieve and to mourn and to be sad and I think even beyond matters of life and death Christianity has done a poor job of allowing us to mourn. Again, beyond matters of life and death whether it be the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, you know, the loss of health whatever, it seems like sometimes we're just not allowed to be sad. Like it seems like it's the opposite, like we're we're supposed to always walk around with a smile on our face pretending like everything is hunky dory. You know, that we're too stressed. No, I'm saying it wrong. (laughs) We're too blessed to be stressed. We've got the joy of the Lord that God never gives us more than we can handle. Except sometimes it does feel like we've got more than we can handle, right? I mean, so much for being sad. Uh, Hopefully I'm not the only one who can relate to this. Growing up, I remember, uh, you know, on the way to church, dad driving, Mom mom the right seat of the caravan. We, I had three sisters. We did a caravan, six of us, and just being just being chaos from the moment we got out the door, and really the whole process of getting out the door to the ride to church to till we got into the parking lot, just chaos. You know, mom and dad fighting, kids being at each other's necks, and then we pull into the parking lot. I can't drive a fake car very well. We pull into the parking lot, and all of a sudden. Tranquility, we're this perfect Christian family where we walk in like we love each other, have the joy of the Lord in our hearts, like everything is great. Like everything is great. It's interesting. Whether it's the loss of a loved one, whether it's loss of a job, whatever. Even if it's just what seems like loss after loss, setback after setback, How can we as Christians live faithfully while still acknowledging our grief? How can we live faithfully as Christians that's not incongruent with what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the resurrection, what we believe about heaven? How can we live faithfully in that tension? Well, I think we can find some guidance this morning from a uh, a special character in the Bible— a woman who often gets attention for all the wrong reasons, perhaps you've heard of her, Mary Magdalene. Now, for some reason in, tra- in uh, tradition, there's actually this, I don't even know where it came from, this idea that Mary Magdalene uh, was a prostitute, and there's really no historical evidence for it, Which is a sh- and it's a shame because Mary Magdalene gets this bad rap uh, and not gets attention for all the good things she should be getting attention for. But we're going to look today at, at Luke uh, chapter 24. And Mary was a follower of Jesus, and in all likelihood, she was probably just as, just as the same as uh, the other 12 disciples. Just because of history, she doesn't get that affirmation. And in the book of Luke, one of the four Gospels that records the life and death of Jesus, uh, we read of Mary along with four of the other women, or some of the other women who were visiting his grave after the, the morning of the resurrection. So if you'd like to read along with me, I always like reading from the the text here. We're going to read from Luke chapter 24, and we're going to start in verse 1. So it says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them, The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? That's a great line. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb. They told all this to Levin eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene... Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who, th- who were with them, who told them, told this to the apostles. Now, what's interesting about uh, this account in Luke is that Mary Magdalene is mentioned in all four Gospels as being uh, present at this resurrection. And interestingly enough, she's the only one. Uh, the different accounts have different amounts of how many women they remember there. Mary is always present at each one. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all convinced that Mary Magdalene was for sure. She was there at the resurrection, at, that, at the graveside. So because of her, her penchant, her, her knack for showing up, uh, there's one pastor who actually who calls her the patron saint, Mary Magdalene, the patron saint of showing up. Because we know who didn't show up, right? The men. The men didn't show up. And sure, maybe... Maybe it was Mary Magdalene who was there to to do her duty. Maybe she was there to fulfill some cultural expectations. Maybe. But maybe, maybe she showed up hoping for a miracle. After all, Jesus had previously, previously said that he would be killed and rise again after three days. Yet despite these assertions, Peter didn't show up. John, the beloved disciple, did not show up. James, his own brother, didn't show up. But Mary showed up. You know, there's something about showing up. Something about showing up. About something about being present in suffering about acknowledging our grief for ourselves or for another that so often makes way for transformation. This is the thing, this is the thing about resurrection. It doesn't diminish or discount our suffering, rather, it gives us reason to hope. And beyond the hope of heaven, more the hope of the resurrection is that loss and sorrow are not, are never, the end of the story. And I think the hope of the resurrection is that when we lean into our loss and our sorrow, we can come out of it different people. The hope of the resurrection is that rather than ignoring our grief, rather than discounting or diminishing it, rather than wishing it away, I think Mary's testimony teaches us That showing up for our grief is the most important thing we can do. And I think showing up is the most important thing we can do because it is the most compassionate thing we can do, both for ourselves and for others. In the midst of grief, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of loss, showing up for yourself is the most compassionate thing you can do. Showing up can be, you know, making space for your grief. Allowing yourself to mourn, leaning into your sadness. But really, if you're like me, sometimes that seems too much. Sometimes showing up just means getting out of bed in the morning. Can I get an amen? Amen. Sometimes showing up can just be eating and drinking. Sometimes showing up can be just going through your day. But by showing up, you allow the transformation process to begin work in your life. And I think more so when you show up, you don't just benefit yourself, you benefit others as well. By showing up, you model a healthy way of dealing with sorrow and loss. By showing up, you model honesty and vulnerability. And by showing up, you make it clear, you declare that sorrow and loss, they do not. They do not have the last word. We are, after all, right? We are resurrection people. Death will not have the last word. We were talking about this in our animate small group, uh, remembering the life of Rachel Held Evans. Who is a prominent progressive Christian writer, author, blogger, and speaker and she passed uh, unexpectedly at the age of 37 a few weeks back. And I was following the Remembering RHE hashtag on Twitter a few weeks ago. I was kind of overwhelmed and impressed just by her life and her legacy and I I tweeted out, which I thought was a, a very apropos remembrance. I said these Remembering Rachel Held Evan Hashtags remind me that we are resurrection people and death will never have the last word. Showing up matters. And if you doubt that showing up matters, I think we can just look at the testimony of people who have showed up. I think of the civil rights marchers, the Stonewall activists, the Water is Life protesters. Showing up can make a difference, and it can bring trans- transformation to yourself and to others. I've had the privilege of, of being trained in some level of pastoral care and grief counseling. And people, you know, as a pastor too, people often ask me, you know, what's, what's, Lauren, what's the most thing I, helpful thing I can do for my family, for my friend, whoever's been going through this time of loss and sorrow? To me, the most simplest, the most profound thing we can do for someone is just to show up. To be present with them in their suffering, to hold their hand and to let them know that they're not alone, that we'll be with them for as long as they need. I mean, it may come as a surprise, but often that's, that's enough. We don't, need to be, we don't need to be a special counselor. We don't need to say anything special. We don't need to do anything. Just showing up is often enough to show our family or our friends, and to give them the time, the space they need, to give them that time and space to grieve. And really, this this habit of showing up, I think, has implications even beyond just interpersonal relationships. You know, this, this penchant for wanting to say the right thing around moments of loss. When we try to say the right thing, we almost always say the wrong thing when we rarely need to say anything at all. Us just showing up is enough. And, and uh, my point is, even in moments of suffering, even in moments of injustice, so often those of us in privileged positions, we want to we show up and we want to say the right thing. We want to do the right thing. When so often, we can do so much more just by being present by showing up in the face of injustice and inequality. Just showing up. Truly, I believe there is something powerful about showing up, about acknowledging our sorrow and our loss, and working through it, whether it's in ourselves or with others. And that process of showing up, it begins and leads to a work of transformation within ourselves, and it begins to process of new life, just as we saw in Mary Magdalene so long ago. The Christian faith, it does not diminish our sorrow and our loss. Rather, it provides us with hope that in the midst of pain and suffering, new life can come forth. This is, I believe, the message of the resurrection. This is why Easter Easter changes everything.